Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, Hannah Stevens takes us through a passage from the book of Matthew, where we wrestle through the idea of the rapture. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Hannah. My name is Hannah Stevens. I attend here with my husband and three children, and I work at Western Theological Seminary, in case we haven't met before. Um, I have preached here three times, and two of those three times, the phrase weeping and gnashing of teeth have been in the text that I was supposed to preach on. Um, I'm not sure what to do with that, but all that to say, um, I think our text today is a little challenging. Um, From the title, you can see we're talking a little bit about the rapture, and that's because our text is one of the texts used um, to support that theory. And I'll say, I think our text is challenging today, both because of what it says and what I think is there for us, and because of the ways that I think it's been misused. Um, So there you go. So I want to talk to you a little bit about the rapture before we dive into the text, about this theory where it came from, how long it's been around. Um, So the word rapture is not in scripture. And for the majority of the history of the church, this was not something that was believed or taught. Um, The earliest um, that I could find that people started to like put this theory together was in the 1800s, around 1830. Um, Some people attribute it to John Nelson Darby, and some people say, no, 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 it wasn't him. It was these people in England that started reading texts this way. Um, And then it became a more popular theory with D.L. Moody, um, with his evangelistic efforts, and then um, just after World War II, when there was the reestablishment of the state of Israel, that's when there started to be a lot more like speculation among Christians about what are the signs of the end times. And then, I don't know how many of you have seen or read the books of the Left Behind series, but that's what really pushed rapture theory into the forefront of our culture. And I didn't know this until I started looking at this, but not only did Kirk Cameron star in those movies, but Nicolas Cage was in a Left Behind movie. You guys know this? I didn't see it, but I came across that. Um, Okay, so what is a rapture theory? Um, Some people call it rapture, secret rapture. Um, In a very brief, condensed version, it's the idea that at some point, with very little warning or no warning, some people are just going to be taken. Those who are in Christ will just disappear. They'll be swept up into a heavenly place somewhere um, so that they don't have to endure what's going to happen next, which is a seven-year period of testing and trial and end times, and that will be an opportunity for everyone who's left behind um, to turn towards Christ as their king. Um, And then at the end of the seven-year period, Jesus will return, presumably with everyone who was taken at the beginning of the seven-year period, um, to have a final judgment and establish Christ's kingdom. Um, This is drawn from a couple different texts 
in a couple different places, and we're going to look at that. So starting with our text for today, Matthew 24, starting in verse 36. And you are going to see a little bit of where this theory is coming from. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so you can see some of where that's coming from. But I want to start with, did anyone have the feeling that we started, like we walked up to a conversation that was already taking place? If you did, it's because we did. (laughs) This is in the middle of Jesus talking, and he's answering a question that we looked at last week. So I want to briefly just go back to where this conversation began. Because Jesus is responding on a whole section, and our section this week is really tied to what we looked at last week. Um, So in Matthew 24, verse 3, Jesus is asked this question. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? How many questions are there? No, go back. There's two questions. When will this happen? If you remember from last week, they asked this question because um, Jesus has just said, you know all these stones that you see at the temple? They're going to all be knocked down. It's all going to be destroyed. When's that going to happen, Jesus? That's like a big event. So when will this happen? And then the second question, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. There's two different questions, and helpfully, Jesus gives us two different answers. He answers the first question first, and the second question second. So the first question, he answers in that whole section, that's what we looked at last week, and he turns towards that second question where we start here. But what is key about this is the way Jesus answers these questions is in a a type of speaking, a type of literature, a genre of talking that was very familiar to a Jewish audience that my guess is is not normal for us in the room here. (laughs) It's not for me. It's not something I grew up with. And it is an apocalyptic literature. So we can go to this next slide. So apocalyptic literature, apocalyptic speaking um, is common in scripture, and we really need to pay attention to this. 
because we have different genres within scripture. We have different ways. If we read a parable the same way that we were to read a narrative or the same way even that we were to read apocalyptic literature or a psalm or the wisdom literature, we are going to do different things with it. And there's different characteristics of it. This just kind of scratches the surface of it, but apocalyptic literature is from the Greek word apocalypses, um, meaning revelation or unveiling. We talked a little bit about this last fall in the Revelation series, because that's, it's, it's the, that's the word for the book, our last book of the Bible. Um, it utilizes vivid metaphors um, to convey emotions or significance. So we saw this in the previous section from last week. Jesus talked about the sky, the stars and the moon falling from the sky. He's actually quoting Daniel when he does that. And this is a very common thing. This is so significant. It will feel like the stars and the moon are falling from the sky. It didn't happen. That didn't literally happen in what Daniel was talking about. And it didn't literally happen when Rome came and knocked down the temple in 70 AD. Um, but it is a way of conveying the significance of this moment. It will feel like the world is ending. And this is a characteristic of apocalyptic speaking. The other one is it speaks to particular events and has larger truths that they point to. So I think of this as like there's a near farness in apocalyptic speaking and literature. It's talking about actual events that are happening, and it's holding this larger story of scripture, of humanity, of the story God is telling in the background. Which is why sometimes you'll be reading and you're like, yes, that's totally talking about this historical thing that happened. And then there's a phrase, and you're like, wait a minute, that just sounds like the world. That just sounds true. <laughs> that's just what people do. Yes, exactly. It has this nearness to a particular event in time, and it's also holding the long story, these bigger truths that it points to. Now, last week, the section we looked at had in the forefront historical events. That's kind of what Pastor Tim led us through last week. Because it was answering that question, when will this happen, Jesus? When is the temple gonna be destroyed? Oh, that, it, Jesus gives a very concrete answer. It's going to happen within a generation, within 40 years. And we know 70 AD, it was just shy of 40 years. He gives very specific details about that. He is, he's answering, uh, has an emphasis on the near, on what's about to happen um, when the Romans come, while holding kind of the far in the background. This week, I think that emphasis is switched where Jesus is focusing on this larger narrative of scripture and still holding what the disciples are actually going to experience in the, in the near, but that's more of the background part of it. We've got this larger emphasis on the long, long story of scripture. There are people who are smarter than me that would disagree with me on that, but this is the theory, this is the way that rapture theory would take it, so we're going to give it the benefit of the doubt. And I'm not entirely convinced that this isn't speaking to a larger story that we need to be paying attention to. Okay, 
So let's look at a couple assumptions that are being made in this text. I know, this is a hard subject. (laughs) All right, so if you're gonna follow rapture theory, there's some assumptions that are here that are not said in the text anywhere. Um, One, the assumption is, it's good to be taken. Which is interesting, because throughout scripture, it's often not good to be taken. You're often taken to destruction, taken and cast out, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, When there was the, the, in Exodus, when there was the plagues on Egypt, the locusts are taken away to destruction. When the Egyptians follow the Israelites into the sea, they're swept away and none of them remain. Even in the verse where it talks about this, um, just before it says, and they knew nothing. So he's referring to the flood. Jesus is saying this. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill. One will be taken and the other left. Now, just looking at that, is it good to be taken? That seems like a big assumption, particularly because Jesus emphasized so much how important it was to remain, to persevere, to stay, to hang on. He actually did it in the section from last week, though what this is a continuation of. He said... Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Be one who stays. Be one who remains. He says it really pointedly in this, in John 15, 5 through 6, I am the vine, you are the branch, it should be branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. Is it better to stay um, and remain or to be taken away? Now, part of why um, the rapture theory takes the it's good to be taken away is because of another verse they're pulling on. Um, they're taking this little section of Matthew, and they're taking 1 Thessalonians 4, um, and they're drawing on this. And this is why for that theory to work, it has to be good to be taken. Because they pull just these two verses at the end here. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Do you understand where this is coming from? Yes. Okay, so they have to be taken. So they can be swept up into the air and meet the Lord. Uh, Here's what N.T. Wright, just speaking on this verse, says. Um, He says, Paul is doing three things in 1 Thessalonians 4. He's echoing on the one hand, Moses coming down the mountain. On the other hand, Caesar coming to a town of our city, part of his empire, a town or city, part of his empire, and the citizens going out to meet him. Thirdly, he is echoing Daniel chapter 7. Now, Paul does this. He mixes his metaphors and shoves them together. In the next chapter, in 1 Thessalonians 5, he warns people that the thief is coming in the night. 
So the woman is going to go into labor, so you mustn't get drunk, but you must stay awake and put on your armor. Paul here is trying to say, when Jesus comes back, it's going to kind of be like when Moses came down the mountain. It's going to kind of be like when Caesar comes in and the citizens go out to greet him, but not to go away with him, but to process with him so that he can rule, to bring him back to the city. And then he points to Daniel, which we'll get to in a minute. It's the other verse that this theory pulls on. But I want to talk really briefly about that near-far thing. Okay, so even if this is the far view and Jesus is saying, I think saying, remain, you don't want to be taken, um, he's also looking at his disciples. And he is about to die. That is where he is headed. He knows what's ahead for them. He knows that the majority of them are going to be martyred. They're going to watch each other die. They're going to watch their loved ones die. They're going to have this experience where they're working alongside someone and they're gone. They're no longer there. And he tells them in the section we looked at last week, I'm telling you these things because I want you to be prepared for what it's going to be like. I want you to not think that because these things are happening that God no longer has control, that things have gone awry. This is what's going to happen. I want to prepare you for what that's going to feel like. I think that's the nearness of Jesus' words here. All right, so Daniel. (laughs) Here's the third main place that rapture theory is pulling from. It's where they get the seven-year period They're looking at, Daniel is actually, if we could nerd out on Daniel for so long today. There's so much there. It's really rich. Um, But they're taking just this section of a prophecy um, and cutting it apart from where it's placed, which is also what they're doing with 1 Thessalonians um, and the Matthew piece, but saying, okay, we're going to take this and put it at the end of the age. (laughs) We're going to say that the seven-year period is going to happen at a later date. Um, So let me just read where it is, what it's saying. Um, He will confirm a covenant. We're talking about the Son of Man here. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. The reason it's weird like that is because um, in the original text it says seven days. And it's generally agreed upon that a day is like a year in prophetic writing People who are proponents of rapture theory don't disagree with that. They're calling it a seven-year period. For one seven, in the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Okay, so many people will look at this and say, this is what Jesus does. This is, Jesus puts an end to sacrifice and, and um put an end to sacrifice and offering, that there's a sacrifice that takes place here. And this may sound familiar to you because Jesus just quoted this verse in our section that we looked at last week. Um, If you go to Matthew, this is a super weird text in Matthew. So when you see standing in the holy place, here's the quote from Daniel, the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand awesome, Matthew. That's such a weird way to say that. But what he's pointing to is, hey, reader, you, understand, you want to understand what he's talking about here? What Jesus is saying? Go back and read Daniel. 
Now, there's lots of theories about what this timeline is about and where it is. Some people think it was in 160 BC um, with Antiochus because it, it's building up to like, there is going to be an empire that is so evil and God is gonna destroy it. It's gonna be like a beast, but God will come and destroy it. So some people think it was 160 um, BC Antiochus because he was an evil man. <laughs> some people think it's Jesus and Rome and what's happening there. And some people put it at the end of the age. And the, the dates don't really line up perfectly with any of those things. Um, but I think here's what is helpful for us. There is this story of what happens in history, what people do in this world, that they build kingdoms and they destroy one another in ways that become almost like a beast that's consuming. And God confronts those kingdoms. Ultimately, God confronts those kingdoms and they will not win. The hope that Daniel is offering us is in the end, these kingdoms will not win. So I didn't probably answer most of your questions. I probably just created more questions. Um, but I want to not spend all our time debating this. I just want to show you this is what it is. I think it's a pretty thin scriptural basis for this theory. There's these three places that are kind of pulled together to form this one kind of like, maybe this is what the end of the world is going to be like. And for whatever reason, we feel like we need to answer this question. But I actually think that engaging scripture in this way is a way that we hold scripture at a distance. It's way more comfortable to enter the debate and say, well, this says this, and that says that, and so I'm right. But don't actually think that's the purpose of Scripture. I think that the purpose of Scripture is for it to form us and shape us. And I think we have become a lot more comfortable with thinking about Jesus than following Jesus. I know I have. I fall into that trap. But here's the thing. I think this text has something significant to say to you and I. Because we are in the in-between space. Meaning, Jesus came to earth and died and saved us and defeated death and came back to life and physically went away, though he said, I will be with you always. But I am physically coming back someday. We're in between those events in history. That we can know pretty well for sure. <laughs> the other thing is, there is a whole bunch in this text that Christians don't debate about, which is kind of amazing. <laughs> There's a lot that we all look at and be like, yeah, that's probably true. Jesus is physically coming back someday to rule on this earth. That's generally agreed upon. When Jesus comes back, it'll be a surprise. We don't know when that's going to be. Jesus says that himself. No one knows. I don't even know. When Jesus comes back, there'll be some sort of judgment. Some people will be caught off guard and not ready and surprised. And some people will join in the celebration. I 
I don't know how that lands for you. It feels a little heavy for me. But let's look at it a little bit. Jesus, so I think the question for us as we think about that reality and some of the things this text might be pointing to is what does it mean to wait faithfully? If we're in this in-between space, what does that mean to be in that space well, to wait faithfully well, to be waiting and watchful as the text talks about? So Jesus has this section and then he follows it up with three parables. And here are the three parables in summary. I apologize, we just don't have time to read them all. But the first parable, Matthew 25, 45 through 51, um, they, all three of these parables have very similar themes. So this parable, um, the master goes away, he puts a servant in charge of his household and the other servants, and the master is gone longer than expected. <laughs> It'll be good for that servant if when the master returns, he is found doing what the master asked him to do. But what if the servant thinks, oh, my master has been gone a long time and starts to just enjoy the household things and gets drunk and beats the other servants. That servant is a wicked servant, and when the master returns, he'll be cast out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Parable number two, ten virgins with oil lamps go out to meet the bridegroom. The bridegroom is gone longer than expected. (laughs) They go to sleep. They wake up. Five of them don't have enough oil to keep waiting, and five do. They try to borrow oil, but they can't. So they go to get oil, and they come back. They've missed the bridegroom's arrival, and when they knock on the door, the bridegroom says, away, I've never known you. Third parable, a master is going away, (laughs) calls together three servants. He gives one of them five bags of gold, one of them two bags of gold, and one of them one bag of gold. He leaves and is gone longer than expected. (laughs) The one with five goes out and makes five more bags. The one with two goes out and makes two more bags. The one with one buries it in the ground. The master comes back. He celebrates with the ones who come and bring the five that they've earned and the two that they've earned and gives them more and says, come, join in my celebration. And to the one who comes and says, I know you're a hard man, And so I just buried what you gave me. Here it is. He is cast out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. All three of these parables have someone who's waiting well. And the words used to describe them is they're faithful and they're patient and they're watchful. And all three of these parables have someone who gives us the opposite example. And they get tripped up in different ways. These people are called lazy and wicked. Um, So the ways that they get tripped up, the first parable uh, is about somebody who starts to think because the master's been gone so long that he's actually in charge and everything there is for him. So can you imagine a world in which people might start thinking that the world doesn't actually belong to God? Where we're in charge? And actually, like, we can just do whatever we want to whoever we want. It's just about us and how we experience this world, right? We don't have any accountability to somebody else. Second parable. The way that these women get tripped up, initially they all look the same. You would have never known a difference between them if it wasn't for the long wait. There's something 
that allows them, some to continue to remain, to persevere in something where others just can't do that. Can you imagine a world where some of us would be so excited to follow Jesus, have so much passion for it, and after a long time of trying to follow God, get burned out, drift away, not remain. In the third parable, this one I find really fascinating because what seems to be happening, what seems to be tripping up this servant is that he, something about the way he sees the master doesn't let him receive from the master. Like, I don't need that. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to take anything from you. Just bury that in the ground. As the master pointed out, you could have put it in the bank. But no, you are a hard man, which doesn't actually seem to be true in the parable. This master gives to each servant according to their ability, gives generously bags of gold, and wants, to, wants them to go out and do something with it for their enjoyment and to join in his joy. He doesn't actually seem to be that hard a man, but this third one can't get past the image that he has, and he doesn't want anything from the master. And some of the um, commentaries I was reading would say, a Jewish audience would immediately think of the temple with the bags of gold, because that's where the gold was. And I think about that, and I think about the people who could not receive from Jesus, the Pharisees, those associated with the temple, they didn't think they needed anything from Jesus. You know who received well from Jesus? The sinners and the prostitutes that were like, yes, I need you. But those who look at Jesus and are like, I don't think you have anything to offer me. I don't need what you're giving me. Can you imagine a world in which that might happen? Now here's the danger of me talking about this text in this way. It can really easily go to shame and feeling like, I just have to be a better Christian. Like, I'm in this waiting thing, and I just need to be a better Christian. And personally, I make all three of these errors all the time. Day in and day out, I forget whose world this is. Day in and day out, I run out of steam. It happened last night when I was putting my kids to bed. And there are times when I think I don't need anything from Jesus. I think the danger, and I think it actually just plays into these ways of waiting, is we're going to say, you know what? We're just going to do it better. We rely on ourselves and we forget what Jesus is offering us. So I kept wrestling with this, and I kept thinking, what's the action step, Hannah? Like, shaped very well by my culture, I want to know, what am I going to do with this? And there was one that just kept coming to me, and I was like, nah, can't be it. Finally, I was like, okay, maybe this is the invitation. Because it's what the church has always done, and it's what Jesus taught, and it's what Jesus modeled. It's prayer. I didn't actually know we were going to be doing that prayer earlier today. But it's prayer. And as I thought about it, I realized that prayer is what puts us into the posture that we need to wait well. Because the very act of prayer is saying, I am not God. 
The very act of prayer is going before our God to say, this is your world. Tell me how to live in it. And prayer is actually what sustains us. You know, as we're running out, we feel like our energy is gone. What did Jesus do when that happened? Every single time he prayed, that is what gave him enough to remain. That is where he got his strength from. And prayer pushes us into a posture of receiving from God. It's an admission that we cannot do it on our own, that we need God to help us. I was at a church a few weeks ago in Chicago, in the North Austin neighborhood of Chicago. And they told us this story. It's a husband and wife, pastor, couple. They told us this story about how they had bought a building 15 years ago, a few blocks down from where their building had been. Um, And it was kind of this big warehouse building, and they believed God wanted them to move to that building. Um, But this wasn't a big church. (laughs) They didn't have a ton of resources. And after they bought the building, things kind of stalled out. They just couldn't get the traction to get it to the place they needed to be to make it their church, which meant that they were paying taxes on it because it wasn't their church yet. So they were paying like $32,000 a year, um, and they weren't doing anything with it, and they were arguing <laughs> about what to do, and it was starting to cause division and people leaving for five years. And then they learned that there were people who were coming to their building trying to curse the building that they wanted to move into, doing kind of like, I don't know, satanic rituals around their building, trying to like curse their community. So what would you do? What would you do if that was happening? You're like, man, we thought this was what we were supposed to do, but there's all these barriers and we don't know what to do. Well, what they did, I've never heard of anyone doing before. They started to pray. I've heard of that. They started to pray as a community. And then they hired two people to pray. Each of them, eight hours a day, so 16 hours a day, to go to the building they wanted to move into and pray. For two years, they paid people to go and be prayer warriors and pray over the building, and they committed themselves to prayer. And when we visited, they had moved into this building, and incredible things are happening at this church. Um, Organizations like Target and Amazon and Costco and Sam's Club are bringing trucks to them to donate food and clothing, and they're distributing it throughout the neighborhood. They are impacting the lives of thousands of people every week, and this is not a big church. Our church is a bigger church than this. And when I was there, this wasn't planned, but the mayor came of Chicago Um, to address the church because she recognized the impact that they were having. Now, what's incredible about this story um, is not all of that that came out of it. Um, I would find it just as impressive if after the two years, they um, decided to sell the building and do something else. What's incredible about this story is that they decided they weren't going to leave it up to themselves. They were going to stop relying on their own efforts, their own creativity, their own ability to to push forward. They were going to stop, and they were going to pray. And they were going to remember that the church is God's church. And they were going to sit in a posture of receiving from God and saying, what do you want us to do? So the other danger about all of this is you're going to think, because I'm up here, 
saying this, that I'm really good at prayer. And I promise you I am not. I promise you it's something that I wrestle with, but more and more I am realizing that in this age that we are in, the world needs the church to pray. And as I've been preparing for this, I've reminded myself a couple mornings, Hannah, Jesus could come back today, which that'll change your day. And I've noticed that on the days that I'm aware and the days that I am praying throughout the day, that I'm paying attention, that I'm asking, God, what do you want to do with my life today? That I am seeing what Jesus is up to in the world more than I ever have before. That I am noticing places that I could step into, building God's kingdom in ways that I never have before. Small things in my family, small shifts of the way that I am with the people that I meet. So my invitation to you today is let's be a church that prays, both for the formation of the world and for our own formation. I think that is what the world needs us to do, and that's what God is inviting us to do. Please pray with me. Father God, This is your world. And I am sorry for the ways that we try to make it ours. I pray that you would help us to turn first towards you and remind us that you're ultimately going to win and you are coming back someday. Thank you for the way that you love us and the great amount of patience that you have with us. We pray that we would continue to look to you. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that this week's message has brought you both some challenge and some blessing. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, find us on the web at www.southharbor.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., you can find our service streamed live on our Facebook page. And so from all of us here at South Harbor and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.